Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 39. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about cultural landscapes and indigenous connections in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute Peoples Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. On today's show, we have Dr. Diane Menzies. I'm uh, Nati Kahununu, Rungafukata, and Aitanga Amahaki. Those are my tribes. Dr. Menzies, officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit, is a consultant on cultural landscape and indigenous issues for Land Cult Limited. Previously, she has worked for district, city, regional, and central governments, as well as universities. She was director of communications for Ministry for the Environment, an elected local government representative, and commissioner of the New Zealand Environment Court for 11 years. Her PhD is in resource management, And she also has academic qualifications in horticulture, landscape architecture, business, and mediation. Diane is a member of Na'aho and Kahui Fitu, a president of the International Federation of Landscape Architects and a member of ICOMOS Cultural Landscape Committee and ICOMOS New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Diane. Good morning. Well, not morning for you. Uh, Hi, Hi, Jessica. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's middle of the afternoon here, a day earlier than than where where you are. Yesterday for us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Time travel. All right. Well, there's there's a lot to talk about obviously as evidenced by that bio, but let's let's start at the beginning. What got you interested in this this kind of field and this this kind of work? Well, I guess I took up landscape architecture because I really love land and creatures. I spent my years as a kid in the next door neighbor's stream catching, I called them crawlies, but they were actually fresh freshwater crayfish and I probably depleted their population. That's what I really enjoyed, the bush in New Zealand, the smell of the bush and generally the birds and so on. So that's where I started into landscape architecture, but I'm more recently Uh, working in heritage, heritage field, and that is because I had a rather privileged upbringing and I started working in uh, things Māori to do with emergency housing and realised just what an issue it is, what a dreadful situation many Māori are in, and so it's a social justice reason that I'm doing this. So as I as I mentioned before we we got on air we were talking about the heritage field and most of us know of landscaped architects but don't really 
necessarily even know what that means or what that looks like. So for all of our listeners who are in the anthropology field or adjacent, could you give us a little bit of background on what that is and maybe what that looks like on a day-to-day basis? Yes, well, landscape architecture is about both the physical, that is the landscape out there, and people. And when you're dealing with people, you're talking about intangible memory, associations, connections with the landscape as much as you're talking about the physical manifestations such as a mountain or a stream or a plaza in an urban area. Landscape architects do a range of things from planning, uh, working on plans for municipalities or cities to design, design being either very small scale, such as a person's garden, a city garden, a national park, wide areas uh, working for farmers on their farm plans, to the regional scale and regional planning and also management of landscapes as well. So it's a broad field and overall you could say it's all about design, but it's also a combination of people and the land. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That ties in a lot to our work here in the US. You know, I'm a, a cultural anthropologist by training and one of the the concepts we have here in the US is what's called a traditional cultural property. And it, it looks at a lot of, of what you were mentioning there, both the the physical, tangible landscape and the the intangible associations as well. But I guess the difference being that our role is more, I mean, we're looking at, um, you know, government management plans and things like that, but more on the, the documentation side and the protection side, I guess, as opposed to planning and development of, of landscapes, if that makes sense. Does that sound? Yes, and, and probably mm-hmm. landscape architects' emphasis is on the future, on change and mm-hmm. change or reacting to change. And visioning, in other words, right. drawing and producing designs that are maybe in people's heads, but they're finding it difficult to communicate what that vision might be. So uh, mm. transferring that into a drawing that can be then uh, put in put into construction and so on, and that's the other part of what landscape architects who do design work do, choosing all the materials, the plants, the other aspects of a design and then specifying what they are and how they're to be put into construction. Okay, so can you give an example of like a project that you worked on that as a, as a landscape architect, but how it uh, maybe tied into the heritage field? Well, I've been doing a lot more landscape planning than landscape design, although you could say mm-hmm. all design. Just an example that springs to mind from years ago, I first worked for uh, Wellington City Council, and uh, one of my very first jobs was designing a outer town belt. Now, you know that Boston, for instance, has got a town belt. I think it's called the Green Necklace. In Boston, Wellington City had a similar, has still, a similar thing called the inner town belt or the town belt. 
And I was looking at doing the same thing on an outer area so that all the new subdivision had a ring of green around it that uh, hopefully would then concentrate development within that ring rather than the suburban area just stretching into infinity, so to speak. Mm. And so the connection with heritage, well, I, I guess it's all dealing in land that will become heritage, is heritage for some people when you're working with it and understanding what people's values are to do with that land and landscape. Yeah, so how did it, how did it get selected, for example, which land becomes part of this this town belt and from what i'm i had to actually google because i wasn't exactly positive i wasn't sure if you were talking about a highway or like a green space area and it looks like it's a green space area around a town how did it get decided for example which areas formed part of that that green space well it was fairly pragmatic in that at that stage there was a lot of development going on And developers tend to prefer to work in land that is easy to develop, doesn't need too much earthworks. The other side of that is the city didn't want too much earthworks near streams and river valleys because that then tends to pollute, put silt in the stream and kill everything in the stream Mm -hmm. that's silted. So the approach we took was to try and set aside the steeper land in areas that could be set aside so that it was the rugged land that was taken as reserve in conjunction with the developer who then took, then was able to develop their more easily developed areas of land. And so it was a requirement was, I think, 10% of the value of the lots created, if that makes sense, 10% in cash terms. And uh, so a lot more land that was hard to develop was taken, but in cash terms, it was of less value to the developers. So quite in, in some areas, quite a lot of land uh, was set aside for that surrounding necklace, if you like, so that it might be walkways and cycleways and all sorts of things into the future and create a, a green lung encourage vegetation to grow again on it and the reason quite a lot could be taken was just because we were concentrating on the land that wasn't so easily developed anyway. Yeah I mean but those values really are so important for a city I mean it really does just change your experience to have have those places where you can go and walk and ride your bike and be in nature and yeah, makes a big difference. Yes, and uh, another thing we were doing is connecting up some of the larger open space areas, larger parks on the outskirts mm. of the city, mm-hmm. so it all connected up in the end, so that you could do those long hikes, long bike rides, and enter in one place and come out in another place, catch the train home or anything like that. That sounds lovely. <laughs> I guess they're working on um, something kind of similar in our area. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. So I'm curious about you. So you've written a lot about decolonization and how that can lead to better cities. Thinking about what we're talking about right now, I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear more about that aspect. Yeah. So only a little about that, but that is also about design, but it's also about 
social cohesion and identity. Because if a city is only reflecting the values of one culture, the other cultures there don't see themselves there, don't feel the connection, maybe feel alienated. So looking to, in New Zealand, to decolonize so that there is a stronger reflection of Māori, so that there is different design inspiration. And I think for New Zealand, it's also a difference. Rather than have a city that looks pretty much like a lot of other cities in the world, apart from geography perhaps, uh, but if you walk down a a main street, you will see the same things. You will often see the same plants planted. You will see the same commercial outlets. But if there's more of the people of the land there and it reflects them, uh, it's as much as reflecting the geography and the stones that you used to build or the plants that you used to create green space with. So it's a case of thinking in a different way and trying to reflect different cultures in the ways that cities are planned. Okay. Well, and I guess, I mean, that's a really interesting thing to think about. And especially, so living here in the American Southwest, one thing that that kind of naturally springs to mind with that is the difference between making a city a a place that feels um, welcoming to all different kinds of people and cultural appropriation. So for example, there's a lot of Native American symbols used in cities and businesses, et cetera, across the the US Southwest. But I think there's a an important distinction there between between the two. Is is that something that you guys have faced in New Zealand or, or have talked about? Yes, and uh, in working with some colleagues who are architects and Native American, there is some innovative and really inspiring work done, which reflects the place and the culture as as much as other things. So, yes, I think you are doing some of that. New Zealand has been a bit slower to allow architects, I guess, to be able to show what they can do. Well, yeah. And I guess what I'm partially getting at though, too, is, you know, a lot of these Native American quote unquote inspired designs are not um, from the communities themselves. It's more um, appropriative, more other people profiting off of their cultural imagery, Uh you know, because obviously you want to like make spaces welcoming and comfortable and familiar, but then, you know, how do you avoid getting into usurping of, of cultural images, I guess? Yes, misappropriating. Uh, yeah. It, it needs to have meaning. And if it doesn't have meaning for the people who are of that place, if it's not their stories that are being told through the design, it's meaningless, really, because it won't mean anything to those who are not of that culture anyway, and it mo- won't mean anything to those who are except that it's wrong. It's in the wrong place. So, yes, obviously that's an issue that people using design, misappropriating, putting a ubiquitous design in all sorts of places. And in New Zealand, that might be po, which are a bit like totem poles are carved. In Australia, it's talking circles, I'm told. 
are everywhere in parks, in other words, a nod to that particular, to the culture, but not taking the culture with you and being part of the design. And I'm not sure what happens in the States, but yeah, that's something that doesn't benefit, doesn't benefit cultures. It doesn't, it's just bad design, that's all. Right, right. So how can that be, well, and gosh, we're already coming up to our first break point. So this might have to, to come after the break, but you know, from a, a landscape, architecture, heritage perspective, how can, what what kind of work can people do to avoid that issue of misappropriation and, and builds these better decolonized cities? I would say talk to the local people who are part of that area. Have cups of tea with them. Form a, a relationship with them. And then find out what they what is important to them. What are their stories that they would like communicated? Because some don't want certain stories communicated anyway, and it's up to them. So yes, work with local people. It's not a tick box to uh, gain a contract with. It's something that needs time needs to be put into it and uh, humility. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a perfect note to end this segment on, and we will be right back. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back. So we were just talking about, you know, the, the misappropriation of, of culture and and how landscape architecture can work towards decolonization in better cities. Where, where would you like to see the profession of landscape architecture go more in the future? Um, what do you think some, are some challenges that it currently faces? Well, I would like landscape architecture to work more on the cultural side to understand cultures better rather than the main culture in which uh, landscape architects might have been trained. It's not so much an issue in Japan because they go with their own culture and don't let out 
outside influences destroy their cultural understandings was uh, an issue in China for a while, but they too now, uh, I think, are not assuming that Western is better or anything like that, going back to Chinese understanding. Uh, My training started with a lovely lecturer who was a hero, but he trained in Britain. He was British, and so his interpretation was of the gardens and the parks in Britain, and we heard and learnt a lot about Stowe and uh, parks that were designed for people and landscape architects such as Capability Brown, who uh, designed many estates. But I learnt when I was working in Britain many years later that they were, of course, estates built for wealthy people. And that really wasn't landscape architecture for the general populace. And I found out later that, of course, one of the early proponents of landscape architecture in the United States, Frederick Law Olmsted, who did Central Park and the Boston Green Necklace and so on, that when he was designing and planning a national park, one of the first national parks, I think Yellowstone, the park, mm, mm-hmm. park yep. plan was to remove the Sioux Indian who lived there. Yeah. Now, yeah. that may or may not be true, but I suddenly realized that he had feet of clay and that that is something that should never, ever happen, of course. Right. And so I, I think the training for those who are English speaking has always been based on European values. This is for landscape architecture. And so students absorb that, believe it is how the profession operates, but it's not. That's how culture operates, not so much necessarily the design profession itself. And so teasing those two things out. And this is extremely difficult when you Think about the fact that landscape architecture is about people's values and people and the landscape together. And so teasing the cultural issues apart, what is Western culture, what is a different culture, becomes rather difficult. And that's what I realized when an architect was criticizing landscape architects and saying, oh, they're very smug about the way they go about things. And I realized what he was saying is that we are doing things with a Western lens without considering Māori or other indigenous lenses. And that's what we should be doing a lot more of. The global profession, I think, has begun to take that on. But New Zealand is a little country way at the bottom of the world, as you might know. And so it's been a lot slower in New Zealand, which was one of the last countries to be colonized by the British. And many are, I guess, absorbed the Western culture without thinking about Māori culture. And to to start with, there were very few Māori landscape architects. It wasn't a very friendly profession to be in. More are starting and I think change will come, but I think it needs, I always want to see change come faster and people to be bolder in taking on 
things that they ought to take on rather than trying to do both at once, trying to appease both. And I don't think that works at all. Yes, that's that's really interesting because, I mean, in my thesis, for example, I, I use the Yellowstone example. It's really interesting to hear how much the two fields parallel each other, but in a in a different, slightly different way. So that was, yeah, that's really interesting. So with my version of that, the same as yours, was it true? That yeah, yeah. No, they were removed. So my my thesis was about Grand Canyon because that's where I was working at the time. And it was the same basic thing where basically the park would go in and, and um, wait for the tribes to leave and uh, burn down their houses. Yeah. Well, that's a reflection of what ha- happens when there is colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were. It was not subtle, and it's not an aspect of the park that they they talk about. I mean, it's still that area is still known as Indian Gardens. Yeah, it's it's not the prettiest history in the world. The national parks in the U.S. There's a really great book that I used a lot for my thesis, and it was called I think American Indians and National Parks. That gets into a lot of that. But yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, from from your perspective as a landscape architect, and I'm I'm gonna I'm curious about how this will be kind of similar or different about how you define the the concept of landscape. First of all, I'm I'm sure that must be talked about since it's in the title of of uh, the field, and how you feel Maori cultural landscapes differ from the the Western concept of of a landscape. Well, perhaps I'll ask, uh, answer your other question first because there are, I think, over 200 definitions of landscape and uh, I guess people choose whichever they want to believe or adopt. The difference, I think, between Western and a Māori perspective and that probably goes also for someone and Sami who I was talking to from the north of Norway about the same thing in that we see ourselves as part of the landscape, not dominant over it, and that all of landscape, that is all of the creatures that are in the landscape, the birds, the insects, two-legged, four-legged, eight-legged, and so on, are all part of that landscape. We also believe that the whatever it is has spirit and has a life force, uh, which we call Modi, and that life force will be in stones, in living things and non-living things. And so when water begins to get polluted, we uh, it, it, Māori give it a different name. There are different names for different health of water, and what you don't want is that it has lost its Modi, lost its life force, because then there won't be fauna in the in the rivers and they help to clean and feed the fish and so on. So that's what a position we don't want to get into. And the most important thing as part of that is that without clean water, we won't be living. There won't be life on earth without a landscape. We'll have nowhere to stand. So no life, no people and so on. So... It's not, uh, land is not regarded as an object rather than part of. We are part of the land, part of the landscape, whereas in a Western perspective, landscape or land is objectified. It's something out there 
and it's subdivided. It's uh, a commodity. It's sold and bought in a Māori perspective of uh, land or landscape. Land can't be bought. It's for caring and it's for handing on for future generations, not to be bought and sold. So, okay, if you're looking at that from, you know, an assessment perspective, a landscape architect perspective, how how can you best apply that in um, in your work? Like, how can you take that understanding of Maori landscapes and make sure that you're working in like a best practices kind of way? Well, some of that is just under debate at the moment because in New Zealand it falls into a legislation situation. The legislation currently defines outstanding natural landscape as being landscape that is important on a national basis, while things precious to Māori are also identified. Most landscape architects have never looked at that so much as simply assess and identify whether it's an outstanding natural landscape or not, or a standing natural feature. Uh, what may well be happening just at this moment is there is a, a panel looking at revising this legislation and they asked me whether I'd uh, comment on cultural landscape and whether that should be included in the new legislation, which will probably have a different name. And, of course, I said yes, but I thought, <laughs> I thought it should be integrated with natural and with ancestral landscape and with historic heritage, if that was included too, because I, again, wouldn't like to see it get to be siloed, that it's either cultural landscape or it's natural landscape or it's something else, rather than it is all part of an integrated whole. I hope that that happens and that is the way that we should go. But, yes, um, Māori are looking at different ways to assess landscape that takes Māori values into account and different ways have been talked about, like taking the people who are, are of that land on a walk and have them identify what is important for them, understanding that intangible aspects are important for Māori, but they are then, the physical landscape is imbued with those values that the local people will have for that. So it's not that it's only in the mind. It's also, of course, as part of the important mountain for those people or the water or the other stories that might connect to it. And they can point out where they apply on the land. It might be names. It might be all sorts of things. And those are the things, particularly names, of course, that should be considered in a landscape assessment. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's not just it's not just the visual. It's uh, in fact visual is not so very important for Māori and maybe other Indigenous too. It's more the connections that are important. Yeah, absolutely. And identity as well. Yeah, this is. I mean, very very similar. It's very interesting. Okay, so thinking about that. And thinking about, you know, you being asked to help reframe the law, 
how can we as, you know, heritage professionals, people that work with um, indigenous cultural landscapes, how can we better express or explain these concepts to the general public? How can we how can we better communicate outside of, you know, those of us that are nodding our heads as you're talking? I, th- I think we first of all need, so to speak, to get our own act together. In other words, what is going to be communicated to the general public needs, first of all, the assurance that the people who are local to that area, whose story it is, make sure it is their story, if it's being told, that they're happy that that story be told uh, because there might be some that they don't want communicated. But there's, I think it just has to be in a variety of different ways and the way I think it should be started is with children, children's books, for instance, in, and also in primary schools and first, first grade schools because the children can teach their parents harder to do it the other way around. And I think they will would absorb a much better way of thinking about different cultures than if it comes as a um, being taught later on or you know, there's other ways of doing it. Photo essays, features in newspapers, all sorts of other things. And of course, exactly what you are doing. But we just need to make that voice louder and clearer. And I guess with thinking back to my mediation skills, trying to put it in other people's language as well. So that uh, it's the way it is communicated is so that they can take it on board as well as those who are trying to make uh, tell those stories. It's not necessarily in the way they might tell their fellow Indigenous families and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And we are again at the right at the end of the segment. So I, I do want to to continue with this this mediation conversation right after we get back from this break. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March thirty first to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back from our break. And I just, I'd really love to talk a little bit more about your work in mediation because I know you've done a lot of, of mediation work, so I'm, I'm curious about, you just mentioned one, if there's any other important skills 
for mediation work, especially when it comes to mediating between Indigenous and, and Western perspectives? Yes, so I did this in a court situation uh, for the New Zealand Environment Court. So uh, the parties were there to try and resolve a situation that otherwise would go to court and then maybe there's winners and losers, but for everybody it's going to be expensive. So uh, it was to try and find a uh, situation that they could contribute to the answer for and so putting yourself in their shoes to try and anticipate what might be acceptable to everybody to try and find a way forward Uh, if it was uh, there were Māori there I would often ask particularly if there was a senior person there if they would start the mediation with a karakia a prayer And if there was somebody from another persuasion, did they want to do the same thing in terms of their own beliefs? Generally, that wasn't a problem, but sometimes it was, of course. And the other thing, I think it was really important to understand their values, well, everybody's values as part of that mediation because the aim was to find a a place that might be a halfway, it might be expanding the whole brief of what you were talking about to make a beneficial outcome, but it was certainly understanding people's values and beliefs and where they are coming from, basically. That's, I mean, that's an interesting point that I hadn't quite ever thought about in the sense of um, we do often ask elders to start out meetings or events or, or field work even uh, with a a prayer, but to ask the other side if they <laughs> want, want uh, to, to say something or include their own prayer. That's, yeah, seems like a very obvious point, but that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'd had some that, you know, took the um, view of, so mm-hmm. what about me? You know, so we're all, all there to contribute. And if it makes that, per- that group, that person feel better, well, that's mm-hmm. what you need to do because it was the whole aim in having the prayers beforehand was to try and start in a peaceable manner and look constructively about what people were trying to achieve and to trust and be humble and respect each other and sometimes you say you know let's all respect each other and then it all goes to custard but yeah that's Mm. what the aim is. Yeah. So do you have any techniques for once it's already getting a little hot? It, it just depends on the people and your knowledge of them. Sometimes uh, you can take somebody who is not contributing in a positive way, take them outside and explain things to them very clearly. Sometimes taking a break and explaining things to each group separately is a way forward and is a, a technique used in mediation. Sometimes it's keeping everybody together because they've all got to contribute and live with, that's the most important thing, live with the outcome that they may decide together. Sometimes it's very difficult and uh, people need to be kept apart. Are uh, their worst enemies and sometimes they've been enjoying the conflict, if you like. They've lived with it for so long that thinking about what life might be without that conflict is something they haven't considered. Thinking about what they want rather than what they do want 
and what their neighbours or others might also want are things that they haven't thought thought of. So trying to get people to do that is often something that will start engaging people rather than being locked into that opposition, I guess, those thoughts. Okay. Well, since we're on our last segment, and I I definitely really want to get to this, even though I could definitely ask you more mediation questions. Can you tell us about uh, ICOMOS and what what does that work actually look like? I don't think, I think a lot of us don't uh, necessarily have a lot of background on that organization. And uh, one of our previous guests, Chris Wilson, he mentioned that he was going to be working with you on that. So if you could uh, give us a little more information. Right. Well, just very quickly and briefly, ICOMOS is an international organization as part of UNESCO and therefore United Nations. Uh, ICOMOS contributes to assessing world heritage sites and has many different international scientific committees, of which one is cultural landscape, and that's what I'm a member of. ICOMOS is a member of state parties. Uh, Well, it has state parties as members as far as World Heritage Sites go. New Zealand has a government department that contributes to the World Heritage Sites and so on, uh, but it also has a NGO, ICOMOS New Zealand, and most countries, uh, United States, Canada and so on, will have a ICOMOS group within their country. Now, once every three years, they have something called a General Assembly, and that has also a scientific symposium as part of it. And this year it is in Sydney, Australia. And as part of the streams of uh, knowledge, if you like, there is one on Indigenous heritage, which both, both Chris is the local person and I, as the international chair, co-chairing to achieve a stream of Indigenous heritage within the one of six streams that will take part in the International Symposium. There's also other things happening there. I'm taking part in a workshop called Caring for Country, which will be about climate change and other impacts on country in Australia and uh, they're wanting to make sure that there is good representation from Pacifica people because that's where climate change is really hitting in sea level rise and storms in the Pacific. So having Pacifica people there is, is an important part of that. There's all sorts of interesting abstracts that both Chris and I have been looking at from people putting forward papers, one to do with repatriation, for instance, of treasures that have been taken by colonial invaders often to other countries, so repatriating those treasures to people, often heads of you know, people. Uh, bizarre to think that that happens, but that's what has happened. Even mapping, how do you develop different ways of mapping land, landscape, so that it is communicated in a way that tells an Indigenous story as much as it might tell the story of survey and dividing up and uh, ruling lines on maps and so on. 
So all sorts of different things being discussed there. So ICOMOS, if you're interested in heritage, that's a group that you can be part of through your national organisation or through, uh, if you're a landscape architect, lands, uh, cultural landscape is both International Federation of Landscape Architects and ICOMOS combined. I want to make sure we leave enough time to, I'm really curious, I want to hear more about your two books that you're working on. Okay, so perhaps I can talk about the first one called Voices 2. There's already been a Voices 1, and that is the book of Indigenous writings, by you know, by, edited by and for Indigenous. Heavy emphasis on architecture because there's more in Indigenous architects than landscape architects, but my contribution to that wasn't so much landscape architecture as emergency housing that I've been working on with a group who were providing emergency housing for mothers with young children. And that was a, a big learning curve for me, understanding that some women had been surfing couches for maybe five years with their young children because they didn't have a house or living out of their cars. Absolutely shocking that that should be happening in New Zealand, but it was. And so giving more voice to that particular group, now the government has actually put more money into providing support for emergency housing. But when I did that work, it was very difficult to get any funding for that at all. And uh, young women who had just had babies were being sent to motels to live in rather than you know, a place that had connections for them. Uh, the other book I've been working on because I'm a trustee of uh, the Landscape Foundation in New Zealand. It's a New Zealand foundation. And the book we're working on is to try and explain to people that landscape is a lot more broad than the park down the road or inner city plazas or people's gardens that it extends very widely to understanding climate change and water management and and so on and it also is Māori led by that we mean that there is a majority of Māori writers and that we wanted to explain this to both different cultures so that there's a better understanding of what is how Māori perceive landscape as well as how Europeans Zealand Europeans perceive landscape. That's in its final, we've got a meeting with a Māori illustrator very soon and just finishing off all the, I think there's about 36 writers in it and uh, we then have it printed in, in China. So it's a few, several months away, quite a few months away at the moment, but that's another thing that is another way of, I guess, raising the voice of heritage, raising the voice of Indigenous to uh, share stories. What is your portion of that book? Uh, well, I'm the chair of the trust, so uh, somebody else started off with the idea of we needed to uh, change what we were doing and form a knowledge hub. Uh, what that knowledge hub is, it's still being the idea is still being developed, but we thought the first stage of that might be to one contact people in universities because they produced a whole lot of research which is very well shared but that's part of knowledge that should be available to everybody that funds universities 
and research organisations and also practices, landscape practices in New Zealand and other writers and eminent people. And my role was to contact all of those, encourage them to write for us, twist arms, I guess, take advantage of friendships, ask the cousins. And also I wrote an introduction. So mine was more getting it going, getting the writers in, and then people can see it's really happening. And then somebody else is finding the funding, but we're all in it, of course. And somebody else is working on the illustrations at the moment. And uh, another of our colleagues check translations and correct references and so on. So we're all in it. And the aim is to uh, to do pretty well what you're doing, I think, and take these issues out to wider public, take it overseas. We also have Irish and Australian writers, a Australian First Nations poet and writer, another who is living there and working on a revegetation of a large area, and Irish who were colonised for 800 years. I thought they might have an interesting story to tell about language and language change. And uh, yes, one wrote in on that and another wrote on uh, farming landscapes in Ireland. So I'm hoping that it will be useful for people in New Zealand. We get it out before the laws change and it becomes less relevant. So we're, we're right at the end. So is there anything that you were hoping to to say or, or talk about, get into uh, before we close out? Well, for a lot of Indigenous, particularly those who have been colonised, life is a struggle. Land is being taken, the resources are under threat from climate change, uh, just as one, but many others. In the words of one of the Sami that I interviewed for a research project that I'm working on, he said, never give up. So I guess that's a strong message. It might be a struggle, but if you give up, uh, I guess that begins to be the end of culture. So keeping your language or uh, reconnecting with language, reconnecting with land is just so important for many. And uh, from my point of view, it's about social justice as well, as to try and make sure that there is social cohesion. There's not people who are struggling as much as some are at the moment. So thank you for your time, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you for coming on and and talking to all of us. And I, I mean, personally, it was really fascinating. I, I feel like I have a much better understanding now of, of landscape architecture. And it's it's really interesting to see the way it, it dovetails with our fields and to, to really look at a lot of these same topics from a, a different perspective. So thank you. Thank you. I'd like to dedicate this episode to Alden Birch Naranjo Jr., Southern Ute historian and religious leader. His loss is immeasurable, but I imagine like everybody else that knew him, I'm just grateful for the, the time that I did have to learn from him and to laugh with him. May his memory be a blessing. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash 
Heritage Voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.